the heart of our nation's capital. Here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Well, good Friday afternoon to you. I am Sarah Perry, your host on this, the 5th of June, 2020. On today's edition of Washington Watch, the U.S. jobs report for May was supposed to be a foregone conclusion. Millions more jobs lost, the unemployment rate still rising. And yet, this morning, the Department of Labor's announcement on the economy had financial prognosticators scratching their heads. The U.S. unemployment rate fell to 13.3% after the economy added 2.5 million jobs last month. I'll be joined by Dan Celia, President and CEO of Financial Issues Stewardship Ministries, to break down the numbers and see how they apply to you. In my second block, I'll be joined by Jose Gonzalez, president of Samila Inc., who will discuss the 300, 434 human rights organizations from 16 countries who've just condemned the United Nations push to expand abortion during the pandemic. At the bottom of the hour, our nation is desperate for unity and reconciliation, as we know. Pastor Brian Gibson, founder of the Peaceably Gather movement and the pastor of his church, will discuss his rally this coming Sunday on the National Mall in a united call for an end to the riots. And in my last block, we will conduct a legal roundup with court decisions from around the nation, addressing church reopenings, COVID regulations, abortion, and religious liberty. I'll talk with Catherine Beck-Johnson, FRC's Research Fellow for Legal and Policy Studies, and Travis Weber, FRC's VP of Policy and Government Affairs. Now, a reminder, TonyPerkins.com is our podcast website. Go there. For more information on the resources we'll be sharing today and the guests we'll be discussing these issues with, our podcast can be found on any of your favorite podcast platforms, but also on the Stand Firm app. If you don't have it, make sure that you download the latest version. Go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. We've rebuilt it from the ground up, and now you can take Washington Watch with you wherever you go. Well, U.S. unemployment rates expectedly dropped to 13.3% in May, down from a record high in April, indicating the nation's economy is recovering far faster than expected from the coronavirus lockdown. In its report this morning, the Labor Department indicated that employers added a stunning 2.5 million jobs in May, the biggest increase for one month on record. In a press conference this morning, President Trump set the tone with a recognition first of the struggles our country is facing concerning race relations. Let's listen. Equal justice under the law must mean that every American receives equal treatment in every encounter with law enforcement, regardless of race, color, gender, or creed. They have to receive fair treatment from law enforcement. They have to receive it. We all saw what happened last week. We can't let that happen. Hopefully, George is looking down right now and saying there's a great thing that's happening for our country. There's a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody. This is a great day for everybody. This is a great, great day in terms of equality. It's really what our Constitution requires, and it's what our country is all about. Trump then surveyed the numbers and talked about what growth was experienced in various industry sectors as he opened up the floor for discussion on the Department of Labor. Let's listen. The job surge that we're seeing right now is widespread. 
Leisure and hospitality added 1.2 million jobs. Construction jobs are up, listen to this, 464,000. Education and health services rose 424,000. Retail trade is up 368,000. And here's the one I like the best. Remember, previous administration, that you need a magic wand for manufacturing. Manufacturing, which we had up to 600,000 jobs prior to the plague, manufacturing rose to 225,000 jobs, up by. So we picked up 225,000 manufacturing jobs. That's very unexpected. Everything, everything that you've seen this morning is unexpected. Even the pros sitting here would understand that, everything. We also smashed expectations on the unemployment rate. The prediction was that the unemployment rate would rise to over 20 percent, and instead it dropped to around a little more than 13 percent. Slight difference. So is this a turning point for the economy, and how does this apply to you? Joining me to break it down is Dan Celia, President and CEO of Financial Issues Stewardship Ministries and nationally syndicated radio and TV host of the Financial Issues Program. Dan, welcome back to Washington Watch. Dan, welcome to Washington Watch. Well, when Trump responded by saying that they were anticipating that the numbers were going to be continually worse, he actually had data to back it up. In fact, economists surveyed by Refinitiv predicted that the rate would rise to 19.8% with 8 million more Americans who would lose jobs. So this boost in jobs is slightly big news. Let's try again with Dan Celia, President and CEO of Financial Issues Stewardship Ministries. Dan, are you there? I'm here. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm well. I'm so glad to be joined by you today. There's no one better to break this information down. We've got some new data just out this morning, a very encouraging press conference in the Rose Garden today. Mm. U.S. unemployment has fallen. So despite the predictions from a lot of the economists nationwide, we're actually trending in the opposite direction, and it looks like the economy is rebounding. Is this encouraging news as we go forward, even into June? Well, it's very encouraging news, Sarah. It is, I mean, for me and a lot of other people, I'm sure, you know, we knew the economy was going to recover uh, very quickly once we got back to work. But we're about, on just the job numbers alone, I would say we're a month or two months earlier getting to the point that we've gotten to today, 13% unemployment rate, um, than anybody ever expected. And that is really good news because it is giving us an indication of what many have been saying, myself included, that this is not going to be a slow recovery mm-hmm. because there's no reason to be a slow recovery. We're not waiting for the economy to build back up again. We came off a very high place in the economy, so therefore... When we flip the switch on, all we've got to do is return to where we were, and where we were was a very good place. 
So some particular industries noticed distinct increases. I think a lot of us are not surprised by these individual breakdowns. Leisure and hospitality, for example. I know yeah. there are people who could not wait to go out to a hotel and take a trip or possibly eat outside at a restaurant. So that's an industry I think we could anticipate. Retail trade is one that surprised me. They added 368,000 yes. jobs. That, for me, if I'm rebounding in terms of a family that's experienced economic hardship, retail is one in which the numbers boosted. Where do you think that comes from? Yeah, I think that was a, that was a huge surprise. Uh, I think there are people, you know, Sarah, I said uh, months ago, I think people are going to end up, when this is all over, uh, wanting desperately to get into a store. You know mm-hmm. how we're just complacent now. We go to Amazon or we go to Walmart.com or whatever. And people are saying, I just want, I want to get out. I want to go to a store. I want to go to a mall. I want to go shopping. And I think that retailers are anticipating that. And the other thing about retailers picking up is it's not all about the dot-com retail sales. Right. Uh, continue to go up dramatically because people, people say, oh, you know what? I don't want to just go to Amazon. Just go to Walmart.com. I'm going to go to these other stores other uh, stores. So I think retail picking picking up. Now remember, remember in the retail numbers, Sarah, are things like gasoline mm-hmm. that's in the retail numbers. Well, people are driving more. We see gasoline demand going up and it's going to get even more so with leisure and hospitality numbers going up. That's an indication that people are going to be driving even more faster than we thought. So retail uh, and restaurants, that is casual dining, uh, even fast food, that's a part of retail numbers. So I think about three weeks ago, people got, you know, they were just tired. They, you know, as we started to open up, the first thing, today is our first day of opening up. And I said uh, to my wife, I just, I never thought I would say this. I just want to go to a restaurant, sit outside. And, <laughs> you know, right. I mean, it, it's been so nice being home and, and eating, but. You know, I just, I, I just want us to be able to go out. And, and we're not alone, everybody thinking that. And that is having an impact on, on, uh, retail numbers. So what's happening is these retailers, the, the restaurants and others are gearing up. You know, so they're gearing up. They're bringing people back. They're cleaning. They're getting ready for, in some states, that's already happened. So mm-hmm. I think the big pickup was Florida. Texas, two of the biggest uh, st- states for restaurants in the country. So those two picking up, that's really what drove the retail numbers more than anything else between the gasoline, the restaurants, and, of course, uh, some of the kind of retailers as we think of them. Well, we know manufacturing jobs are up. I think we owe that in large part to the fact that ventilators have been manufactured statewide. We are looking at nasal swabs that are manufactured statewide. So we have reason for individuals to work in the manufacturing business. But we're in an election year. So naturally, the economy plays very large, you know, to quote James Carvel, who I don't often quote, but on this point, I think he has a point. It's the economy, stupid. So I think we do get to a point where we realize this is going to be a major player in an election year. So we're looking down the road a few months. Do we have reason to be encouraged in the minute that we have left here that by the time November rolls around, we'll be in better stead? Oh, absolutely. I believe even we could be down below 10 percent by in September, October number. And I I think there were a lot of uh, Democratic strategists 
the DNC. I think they went back to bed this morning about 8.30 Eastern time. I mean, I think they went back to bed. I think they're, I mean, they don't know what they just, they're beside themselves. And I, and I suspect they just, you know, got back to bed and just said, we're, this is terrible. And, and it's such good news for us as we head into the economy. Again, everything the president said that was going to happen is already starting to happen. And, uh, you know, it is, they, they really have nothing to talk about at this point. And I think it's a very good thing. And I think by the time November, the only thing I doubt is that I, I'm not sure what date the election is on, but I, I'm afraid that we might not have a Friday of in November before the election. I don't know. Maybe you could even look at a calendar. I'm not even sure. But uh, so because that's when we're going to get the job numbers out and the new unemployment sure. rate for the month of October, because I, I don't know for sure about September, but I think September, October, I would not be surprised if we get below uh, 10% in unemployment rate. And here's the thing about the 13%, Sarah, I'm going to say real quick, for everybody to focus on. 86% of the American workforce is working. That's the number to focus on. That is the number to focus on right now. Dan Celia, President of Financial Issues Stewardship Ministries, a great guest who knows a lot about things like this. We'll have to have him back. Eugene Scalia, Labor Secretary, this morning on Maria Bartiromo, said that about 50 million American workers have been able to stay on payroll as a result of the Paycheck Protection Program. The number of people receiving aid has essentially leveled off. Good outcomes overall. Well, coming up next, 434 human rights organizations have condemned a push to expand abortion during the pandemic. We're going to talk to the president of Samila Inc., Jose Gonzalez, about it right after this. Stay with us. As coronavirus restrictions begin to ease, many Americans are grappling with how to adapt to the changing times. The last few months have transformed how worshipers think about church and how they are fed spiritually. While many churches are conducting services through live streams, drive-in services, and other means, questions still remain. What practical steps can we take? Are current restrictions appropriate? Do these restrictions violate the Constitution or religious freedom protections? Family Research Council has a new publication discussing religious liberty issues and offering practical guidelines for how churches and houses of worship can begin to operate as our country opens back up. Visit frc.org slash church guidelines to view this resource and learn more. As always, visit frc.org slash church for our full list of resources for churches in the time of coronavirus. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. 
In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Stay in Welcome back to Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry, sitting in for Tony Perkins on this, the 5th of June, 2020. Well, a total of 434 human rights organizations from 16 countries have released a manifesto condemning the push from external groups to promote abortion in their nations during the coronavirus pandemic. The International Manifesto for the Right to Life was delivered this week to the foreign ministry offices of Costa Rica, Argentina, Peru, and Ecuador. Now, it repudiates the UN's humanitarian response plan for COVID-19 for Ecuador specifically, which requires safe legal abortion as a condition for aid. Joining me now to discuss the manifesto is Jose Gonzalez, president of Samila Inc. Samila is a U.S.-based Latin American leadership group dedicated to transforming our Latin culture by the word of God. Jose, welcome to Washington Watch. It's an honor to, to be with you, Sarah. Thank you. So talk a little bit about the details of this manifesto. What's the ultimate message here? The ultimate message is that um, international organizations, multinational organizations like the UN system or our um, regional version, the OAS, Organization of American States, may not compel member states to adopt policies contrary to their constitution and to the will of their people. The triggering event uh, was the fact that uh, under the UN Humanitarian Response Plan for COVID-19, which was approved by the UN for global application um, with an intended budget to be raised, still to be raised, of uh, $6.7 billion to help the nations cope with the pandemic, Um, the specific branch of the UN uh, dealing with Ecuador offered a a plan which included uh, a condition for the aid of approving safe and legal abortion. Mm. This naturally incensed the uh, Ecuadorian people and one of the pro-life leaders there Marcia Villafuerte, um, representing Ecuador for the family, uh, initiated and put out the word, and these several hundred organizations of pro-life, human rights, uh, throughout the Latin world, uh, joined in uh, signing this manifesto. 
You know what I found interesting about this is that really this is sort of a United Nations end run. We have no doubt about the fact that the United Nations has made clear its left-leaning policies on human sexuality and abortion, and yet at the same time they seem to be out of touch with the citizenry, the population of the actual nations for whom the aid is being distributed. And in fact, Losada was saying that the UN's humanitarian proposal is an insult not only to the sovereignty of Ecuador, but to that of the rest of the countries in the region, that the U.N. is legitimately interfering. So we understand, obviously, that aid is desperately needed in times like this, but why use abortion as a shoehorn for your far-left agenda? Is this an attempt overall to, in your estimation, manipulate the way that these organizations are having to distribute money? Definitely. It's a pattern and has been at work for quite some time. Uh, Secretary Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, has approved uh, two different declarations, uh, which under the cover of dealing with the impact of COVID-19 in women and in nations, um, advocate um, what they call sexual and reproductive health, which is a euphemism under which uh, topics like abortion are included. Mm-hmm. Now, abortion is not a health issue. It's a murder issue. Right. Uh, and, and so uh, disguising it under the label of sexual and reproductive right, they are pushing upon nation, upon nation, upon nation. And it is not only the U.N., but it is the entire um, global system. Um, including uh, various UN uh, branches, such as the uh, Fund for Population, uh, uh, UN Women, but also including economic institutions, global institutions like the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, who have time and time again conditioned loans to nations that need to uh, borrow money to build infrastructure like airports and highways and bridges, uh, condition them on approving these guidelines that the sexual and reproductive rights uh, disguise. And I think we are under the impression, some of us who would believe the legacy media, that the Trump administration's efforts to halt pro-abortion stances at international levels through things, for example, like the USAID level, we are being portrayed as outliers, as though other countries don't agree with us. And yet, by the same token, the representatives of 334 human rights organizations in 16 countries not only agree Agree with our perspective, but they are unwilling to tolerate UN agencies that are actually pushing a form of interference in the way their own governments 
distribute much needed support. So what this does, in my estimation, is provide support ultimately for what the administration is doing with regard to preventing abortion overseas. This is not just an emotional issue, a theological issue, a philosophical issue, but a fiscal one as well. It goes to the nature of good use of international hard-fought, argued-for funds. Jose Gonzalez has been my guest. Coming up next, a rally this Sunday on the National Mall is going to call for an end to the riots and racial reconciliation. We'll talk to the founder of the Peaceably Gather movement, Pastor Brian Gibson, about it right after this on Washington Watch. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry. Follow us on Twitter at FRCDC. You'll get links there to all of our information, our resources, our publications. Follow Tony on Twitter at T Perkins or me, if you'd care to, at Sarah P. Perry. And make sure you have the Stand Firm app. Well, as the nation deals with protests and riots in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd while in police custody, religious leaders are trying to offer hope and are taking up the charge of bringing America back together. Leading these efforts is Brian Gibson, founder of the Peaceably Gather movement and pastor of his church that has locations in Texas and Kentucky. Pastor, welcome to Washington Watch. Hey, thank you so much for having me tonight. It's, a, it's an honor to be on. So explain to me what this Peaceably Gather movement is, and tell me a little bit about Sunday's event on the National Mall. You know, Peaceably Gather began uh, during the coronavirus crisis. Uh, we had going across America. So many churches were singled out, uh, other businesses able to operate, but the church is called non-essential. So we began to call churches across America to exercise their First Amendment rights, and regardless of what their governors say, to safely and sanely take their people back to church. So that was the origin of Peaceably Gather. And we took uh, thousands of churches back back online, got their people worshiping together wisely, uh, you know, in a safe way. Mm-hmm. But it, recently, we've seen the, the turn in America. Uh, obviously, the death of, of uh, Floyd was, was um, terrible, horrific, should have never happened and uh, breaks the heart of, of every God honoring American. And so we've been praying against racism, but now also praying against rioting, uh, yes. violence, and some of the, um, well, really bad actors who have, who really capitalized and taken advantage of a, of a horrific situation to push their agenda. So, so we're organizing prayer meetings. Uh, we're, we're calling together pastors. We've did it, we've done it in six different cities. Uh, this week, where pastors of every race are coming together and praying, uh, standing up against in- injustice, praying for revival, praying for restoration and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Just in Louisville on Monday, I saw African-American pastors praying for the police after some horrible things unfolded in Louisville and just a lot of healing and a lot of help. So here's what we believe. I believe the, the Republicans can't fix this. The Democrats can't fix this. The government can't fix this. 
but Jesus can fix this. Oh, amen to that. If we can get doing what they're called to do, we can change this. You know, ultimately at bottom, and you've written about this, I've been through all of your online interviews, very excited to talk to you, but really this is at bottom a spiritual issue, isn't it? Anything that we see that divides us, that foments things like violence and racism, that goes to a condition of the heart and the author of who we are and how our hearts are made is God himself. Do you see this as something for which we can atone for, reconcile for, and that this might be a harbinger of a spiritual awakening in the United States. Yeah, any any time you see something like this, this is a uh, the problems we see are symptoms of the human condition, hmm. and uh, America has fallen further and further away from the Lord. As a matter of fact, when we closed down our churches for almost three months, I believe we're seeing a harvest. See, when the church comes together and prays and worships, there's a covering I believe that comes upon the area. And we've taken that out, and now we're seeing that we're seeing harvest of that. So I think this is a uh, a warning shot, a shot across the bow, mm. and if it can drive us to our knees and make people cooperate with one another that wouldn't have done it in the in the past, right? Because yes. of the hardness of heart. But maybe this can bring about a godly repentance that can change our country, and that's what I'm praying for: a godly repentance to come to our country. And, and for great change to come. So I'll be ministering tomorrow, uh, excuse me, Sunday in D.C., and then we're going to minister to people who are protesting as well. When we're done ministering in the church, we're going to go to the mall. And uh, I, I, from everything I can see, tons of people are headed to D.C. Yes. And uh, some are headed to protest peacefully. Some are headed to harm. Uh, I think all of those actors will be on that stage come Sunday. But we're going to go in the name of Jesus, and we're going to believe God that that tons of righteous men and women will be there. And wherever wherever Jesus' people show up, I believe an element of peace comes to that situation. Oh, amen. You know, we've heard about PPP plans, right? The Paycheck Protection Program. But I heard you say recently that you are calling for others to join your PPP plan. What do those letters stand for? Yeah, it stands for Pray for Peace. And I'll tell you, I spent lunch uh, with me, uh, several several white pastors, and a table full of African-American pastors today. And we're committed to, to pray for peace together. So number one, it's praying for peace. Gather, gather as many uh, diverse groups as we can to pray together for peace. The second thing is we believe we have to preach peace. Man, it's the preaching of the Word of God that makes the difference. And so mm-hmm. we're preaching in our pulpits. But we need to be preaching it in the hardest hit areas of our cities now, where the looting's happened, where, where the violence has happened. Uh, that, that's where we need to be preaching peace. And the third thing, the third P is partner for peace. I believe we need to get together with groups we wouldn't normally have associated with. And we need to partner together, um, you know, so we can see peace. Pastor Gibson, give us a quick shout out of where people can go to get more information. To get more information about our movement, go to peaceablygather.com, peaceablygather.com. We'd love to have you join us, pray with us, support us, stand with us. That's peaceablygather.com. Coming up next on Washington Watch, we've got a national legal wrap-up with FRC's research fellows, Catherine Beck-Johnson, and our VP of Policy, Travis Weber. Stick around. We've got lots to talk about on Washington Watch.
As coronavirus restrictions begin to ease, many Americans are grappling with how to adapt to the changing times. The last few months have transformed how worshipers think about church and how they are fed spiritually. While many churches are conducting services through live streams, drive-in services, and other means, questions still remain. What practical steps can we take? Are current restrictions appropriate? Do these restrictions violate the Constitution or religious freedom protections? Family Research Council has a new publication discussing religious liberty issues and offering practical guidelines for how churches and houses of worship can begin to operate as our country opens back up. Visit frc.org slash church guidelines to view this resource and learn more. As always, visit frc.org slash church for our full list of resources for churches in the time of coronavirus. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. It's Friday, June 5th, 2020. My, where does the year go? Well, President Trump has made no bones about the fact that he believes churches are essential in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak and has taken steps to indicate as such. But many Democratic states have enacted strict and some would say hypocritical regulations, as we just heard from Pastor Gibson, against churches when other businesses are open, be it liquor stores or restaurants for takeout, in a purported effort to stem expansion of the virus. Well, we are nowhere near past the pandemic, and so these related lawsuits continue apace. So joining me now to talk about these suits and some recent developments is FRC's Research Fellow for Legal and Policy Studies, Catherine Beck-Johnson. Catherine, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Okay, first I want to have you give an opportunity to identify the blog that you've been writing, and you've been updating it regularly with some recent developments because it is very hard to catalog these unless you are tasked, as you are, with singularly tracking them. So give a shout-out to our listeners to where they can find your ongoing series on these cases. Thanks, Sarah. Yes, on FRC's blog, we have a blog churches called Churches Are Filing Lawsuits Over Coronavirus Restrictions. Here is a list. And so we're regularly updating that to stay up to date as things are happening very quickly in the courts and even outside the courts with attorneys sending letters to localities. So that's where we are keeping the complete list of the updates. 
So there are a couple of, of new developments, and I have to tell you, some of them strike me as more preposterous than others. I'm reminded of that phrase, and you may be too young for this. It was called jumping the shark, when something has gone just too far to be believable. And I think that's where we are with some of these actual incidents. I'll give you an example, obviously. The Kentucky governor's situation, Andy Bashir announcing he would record the license plate numbers at church for Easter and impose a mandatory 14-day quarantine on the attendees. Now, nothing stresses me out more than thinking I am doing something that is not illegal, and yet my information is going to be recorded so that there can be some form of disciplinary action taken in the future. What was the outcome in that decision? Well, yeah, there have been some some localities that have been speaking about, like you said, either taking the license plate numbers or keeping lists of attendees to church. They claim that way if somebody does come down with coronavirus, they can alert the other people. So we are not as concerned that that would actually hold up in court as a lot of times these nonprofits or church groups are not going to have to be required to keep a list of attendees. Well, and in fact, the Sixth Circuit ruled that the services needed to be allowed, right? Noting that Bashir's ban on these faith-based mass gatherings had quite a number of hallmarks of discrimination, which it did. I think that's obvious to just about any outside observer. Tell me a little bit about what some other recent developments are. I know there have been some in New York and Mississippi and in Oregon. Talk a little bit about where we are now. Yeah, I actually have some good updates. So in Oregon, the governor had a ban that actually was allowing pastors to be jailed up to 30 days and fined over $1,000 for going to church with 25 other people, even though those you could go to a restaurant, a dine-in restaurant, without penalty with mm. more than 25 people. So nine days after that lawsuit was filed, just yesterday, the governor released a new guidance that allowed churches to be treated equally as other secular groups and organizations. So that was definitely a big win in Oregon. Um, Another big win that just actually happened today was in Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin, had a discriminatory order saying that while shopping malls, bars, restaurants, spas, gyms, even trampoline parks were allowed to open at 25% capacity. Houses of worship were still subject to a completely arbitrary 50-person cap, regardless of how big the church building was. Hmm. This meant that in some cases, Catholic churches in Madison were only allowed to operate at less than 5% capacity. So the attorneys for the Catholic Diocese of Madison put out a letter to Wisconsin It didn't have to go to court because finally Wisconsin today issued a new order removing a 50-person cap on in-person religious services. And so now Catholic churches will be able to conduct masses at the 25% capacity as other secular activities. So we have some good news coming out. Now, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the Virginia case. Um, Shinkatique, actually known for the annual pony swim, if you've ever been there. The city itself, the police actually cited a pastor for violating Governor Northam's COVID order for 
a gathering limit, and they were holding a worship service with 16 people in a sanctuary that seats 293, again, very similar to what we were just talking about, even though there's sufficient space here for congregants to worship, recognizing social distancing rules, wearing appropriate PPE, they were all cited, so the church obviously doing very good work, as a lot of these churches do, we know that nonprofits, religious nonprofits, have a tendency to do the most charitable work in the country that not just congregants, but society at large benefits from them. The Department of Justice actually intervened itself, didn't it? Yes, and again, we're very fortunate to have an administration where the Department of Justice is starting to intervene in these cases. So they intervened in the Virginia case that you just spoke about, the Lighthouse Fellowship, Church versus Northam. And they also intervened recently in a Colorado case where, again, the Colorado governor was allowing indoor dining at 50% capacity, but churches were only allowed to have 10 people or fewer. So, again, it's great to have an administration, Department of Justice, Attorney General Barr has made it clear that religious liberty is a priority all the time, but including during a pandemic. So the Department of Justice has definitely been filing statements of interest in these cases. Catherine Beck-Johnson has been my guest. Catherine, thanks for being with us. I want to transition here, but in keeping with a judicial theme, I want to shift the discussion to recent cases involving abortion and religious liberty. And I'm going to talk to FRC's VP for Policy and Government Affairs, Travis Weber. Travis, good to talk to you, as always. Thank you. Okay, so two uh, big cases that I'd like to focus on, but I want to start with the case that many saw as a rather shocking outcome, considering the fact that Chief Justice John Roberts sided with the liberal majority in this case. This is South Bay United Pentecostal versus Newsom. It denied a California church's request for injunctive relief against the state's phased reopening plan. A lot of people say that Justice Roberts made a mistake, that he employed the wrong standard here in weighing competing interests together. What do you say? Yeah, and no, I, I do. I do agree that uh, the chief justice got this one wrong. Um, you know, the case obviously is a little more complex than some of the reporting makes it seem. You know, it, it, painting it in very simple terms that he totally rebuked religious liberty versus not rebuking it. I don't think that's accurate. Uh, there are some procedural questions here over whether the court should have stepped in in this instance. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, having a weight in, um, as the court analyzed this issue, the chief was not on the right side of it. I think um, Justice Kavanaugh, in dissent, uh, joined by uh, Gorsuch and Thomas, um, uh, Articulates the um, uh, the proper view of the matter here, in and uh, notes that um, that uh, clearly the um, uh, the First Amendment, religious freedom protections, uh, under which the First Amendment is is implemented and applied, uh, demand that that secular activities not be given more favorable, better treatment than than religious activities, and mm-hmm. as justice. Uh, Kavanaugh noted in his dissenting opinion in South in the South Bay case, um, California needs a compelling justification for distinguishing between religious worship services and the other secular businesses that have not been capped 
and it failed to do so. So California has not shown such a justification. Justice mm-hmm. Kavanaugh noted in dissent, clearly a right way of interpreting the First Amendment. Um, you know, an unfortunate result, and I hope the court uh, does get this right when these cases come up in the future. Now, some people have noted that this is kind of a unique procedural posture. This particular case, South Bay United, is really just a step toward preliminary and injunctive relief. Do you think that played into it at all? Is there too much to be read into it if we're talking about such a preliminary legal step? Yeah, well, I think I think we have to frame it properly and put it in context. And uh, certainly, you know, some of the claims that Chief Justice totally got this wrong, totally, um, uh, you know, is on the wrong side of this, not not correct because of the nuance with regard to the uh, standard for for whether and how the court should step in at this point. So I'm willing to afford him some some deference on that point and that his consideration and calculus in, in that regard. But um I, I do think having having stepped into the case, um you know, he his 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 analysis of the First Amendment issue here I don't think is correct. I think Justice Kavanaugh got that right. And um you know I I I think, you know, he if he justice could have could have just declined to to weigh in altogether rather than weigh in and articulate an analysis that I think um, doesn't stand up when you compare it to the dissenting justices here. Okay, let me jump to another big case that recently came out, a very big one that could be a harbinger of things to come in June Medical Services versus Russo, where the court will be issuing an opinion in the coming weeks. We know, obviously, that oral arguments have already been held. But the case most recently decided by the Sixth Circuit struck down a dismemberment ban from the state of Kentucky that was signed into law in April of 2018. Talk to me about the rationale behind striking down that kind of a ban. Yeah, so this this is a, a significant case coming out of the Sixth Circuit, and um, my colleague Catherine, who, who listeners just um, had the opportunity to hear from, actually looked at the opinion, did a did a blog post on this that uh, that's on Family Research Council's blog, and as she notes um, here, you know the the court uh, obviously struck this down, looking to current um, abortion precedent at the Supreme Court, including the Hellerstadt case um, decided several years ago. But um, noting the promising uh, aspect of this opinion, which is in the dissent, a Trump appointee, Judge John Bush, articulates um, the point that, that uh, uh, or at least asked the question over whether these challengers to abortion laws deserve to, to have the standing in court to be able to claim to represent women, claim that they are speaking for women and challenging these laws when – their interest in staying in business as part of the abortion industry and the interest of women having someone look out for what they need to be looking out for in these situations, often difficult situations for women, those interests don't always line up. So there's a question of standing, whether these mm-hmm. uh, abortion providers can even claim to get in a court to sue. This question, Judge Bush, a Trump appointee to the Sixth Circuit, is discussing in dissent. The Supreme Court in the June Medical versus Russo case could be issuing a decision in the coming weeks um, we're, we don't have the day, but it's going to be coming out soon, and it's going to deal with the question of whether standing, whether abortion providers can even challenge these laws. In, that, in the Russo case, it was a challenge to Louisiana clinic regulations law, and I do hope the court looks at this robustly and articulates that under our Constitution, um, 
and, and the rules of standing in federal courts, including before uh, the Supreme Court, as the court looks at these cases, that these abortion providers do not um, deserve a place to be able to argue for, claim to argue for women in, in the courts, in addition to these laws not standing up under an originalist view of the Constitution. So the Sixth Circuit Court decision we've been talking about is EMW Women's Surgical Center versus Eric Friedlander in Kentucky. So this is a case that is going to be potentially a bellwether going forward into this round of decisions from the Supreme Court. What I found very interesting and extremely difficult to support, it doesn't quite pass the straight face test, is that two of the judges on the Sixth Circuit said that the majority, the women would have to be unduly burdened when, in fact, they could still get an abortion, just not a partial birth abortion. Do you think that rationale like that is indicative of really the entire industry's attempt to stretch credulity and make sure that profit succeeds above all? I, I do, and I think, you know, the, the reasoning and, and the arguments being thrown around in these cases, both in the filings and in public discourse, um, you know, they, 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 they're stretches at times, and they're, they expose the, um, the lengths to which the abortion industry will go to protect its, its interest, its money, its, its continuation in operating, profiting from, from women. Um, so, you know, the, the Sixth Circuit ruling deals with some questions that the Supreme Court could be issuing a ruling and could deal with very soon and correct. Um, you know, Catherine's, Catherine's blog notes that, that um, the Supreme Court, you know, opinion may repudiate the whole basis for the, 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 the uh, Sixth Circuit opinion to have even gotten into court in the first place. Now, We'll see what happens with this Sixth Circuit case in, in terms of an appeal or an attempt to go from here, but we're going to get a decision from the Supreme Court within the next month in June Medical. That's going to have implications for the ability to get into court to challenge these pro-life laws, for the pro-life laws themselves, on their merits to be able to stand. And these issues are important to many voters and many people out there that are affected by judicial nominees on which President Trump's been great. So I think a lot of big issues to keep in mind here. Travis Weber's been my guest. As always, a great analysis of where we stand with current court decisions. You have been listening to Washington Watch. I've been Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins. I'll have to join you next week. All next week, I'm looking forward to spending time with you. Have a great weekend and join us then on Washington Watch. Washington Watch Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234.